You're listening to The Devoted Podcast, where our desire is to be women devoted to the Word of God. We're so glad you're here, and we pray you'll be challenged and encouraged as we look to God's Word together. Hey, welcome. We have a really special episode today of The Devoted Podcast. I'm really excited. Today, we're joined by Natasha Crane. Natasha is, I always like to start with, she's just a wife and mama first. I love that. She's a blogger, podcaster. She's author of four books and her books, some of these we've talked about on the podcast before, talking to your kids about God, talking to your kids about Jesus, keeping your kids on God's side. And our latest book is Faithfully Different. Those first three, like I said, we've mentioned those here on the podcast before when we've done like our kitchen table apologetics discussions, my husband and I, or, you know, just their books aimed at conversations for kids and parents with their kiddos. But I always, I've told you guys, I think they're great resources. Just even if you just want to start plugging in on apologetics are a great place to start. So that Natasha Crane that we're going to be talking to. So, but her latest book, is called Faithfully Different. And I want to dig into this a little bit with her today. I got the privilege of being part of a launch team for this book. And I read it back in December. It was just one of these gals that so many highlights of going, yes, this is really putting words to a lot of things that we talk about here on the podcast, but I really think that she says things so well. So I asked her if she would be willing to come on and she graciously agreed to give us some of her time. So Natasha, thank you so much for making time for us today. Of course. I'm excited to talk with you. I love this. So can you just start real quick? Because like I said, I like for us to hear that authors and bloggers actually are people. So would you just tell me just a little bit, gave the resume, but tell us who Natasha is. Yeah. And I, and I love that you start with that because you're so right. It's first of all, first and foremost, my family is my ministry, right? My husband and I have been married for 22 years and we have three kids. We have seventh grade twins, a boy and a girl. And we also have a fifth grade girl. I homeschool my seventh grade twins and my younger daughter, she goes to a private Christian school. So actually even the twins had gone to that school from K through five. And then we just decided, you know what? Middle school is such a great time to just really pour into them. So we pulled them out for that time to pour into them academically and spiritually and everything else. And so I'm really enjoying that process. And so that's kind of the season of life that I'm in. I'm enjoying being a homeschool mom and everything that comes with that. It's busy, but so rewarding. I love doing it. Yes. I can only imagine. That's so interesting on be in middle school. My sister-in-law in in Texas, she's going through a situation where she just kind of felt similarly. Her kiddos are in middle school and she was like, they're not hearing about Jesus every day. And that's kind of where she wanted to direct some of her conversations with her kids. And so she's doing the same thing. But I think sometimes mamas, we think, oh no, you got to start when they're little and then maybe later, but the school's a different dynamic these days. So I don't know about where I'd be on that one. So I love that. This book, if you were to drill down just for us, what Faithfully Different is all about, what would you tell us what this book is? I'd say it's summarized in the subtitle of the book. So the title is Faithfully Different. The subtitle is Regaining Biblical Clarity in a Secular Culture. Mm -hmm. And really that's the heart of the book is better defining what is a biblical worldview and how does that clearly get distinguished from what a secular worldview would be. And so I go through nine different pressures that the secular culture puts on us as Christians who seek to have a biblical worldview and show how secularism is creeping into the biblical worldview for 
many Christians. And that really affects us in terms of our ability to be salt and light to culture. And I start the very beginning of the book by just saying that for a lot of us, we're being more like an extension of the secular culture than we are being like a distinct light to it. And so that's really my objective with the book is to help Christians think more clearly about what it means to have that biblical worldview and how a secular worldview perspective is so entirely different. It's not always clear. And a lot of times Mm -hmm. we, we don't even realize that these pressures are affecting us. And I've heard that from so many people who have read the book where they say, yeah, I thought I was going to read a book about culture and understand what's going on out there, but it's just as much about us as individuals and how that culture out there affects us and our own relationship with the Lord. So it's both for our relationship with the Lord and for our ability to be salt and light to others. Yeah. And I think this is an interesting deal, just actually getting people to be aware of worldview. I've actually been kind of surprised how many people go, well, what do you mean by worldview? What do we mean when we mean worldview? Because I love how in the book that you point out that there's no neutral in this. I would misquote it if I tried, but there's a C.S. Lewis quote that talks about that too, that there's, there's no neutral. So what do we mean by worldview? Yeah, that's a great question. So when we say worldview, it's something that every single person has. It's not just, you know, sometimes people think, oh, that's for religious people. Like if you're a Christian, you are a, you know, of the Christian religion, it's a Christian worldview, but every single person has a worldview. And I think of it like the glasses that we put on that we see all of reality through. It's how we answer the big questions of life. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Is there an objective purpose or meaning to our lives? If so, what is it? Where are we going? Who is man? Who is God? If God exists, these are big picture questions. And every one of us has some kind of answer to those questions, whether we realize it or not, whether we've come to those answers consciously or not, we all have a worldview and our worldview determines how we're going to function. It determines how we're going to live our lives. And like you said, it's not neutral. I talk about that in the book that sometimes people think you can just come to this neutral place in the middle of culture where, especially in the public square and issues related to that, we think, well, we can just all have this neutral place out there as a country and then just keep our beliefs to ourselves. But it just doesn't work that way because every country is going to function from some idea of what is good or bad or right or wrong, what people should or should and do. Those are worldview questions. So it's inescapable. You can't take worldview and worldview concepts out of everyday life because every single one of us functions from some kind of worldview glasses. There was one of your interviews that or might, this might've been in the book. You can set me straight, but where you talked to when we were talking about worldview on the concept when people just are, okay, maybe I get worldview, but as long as I'm not doing any harm, Like they almost think that is a worldview. As long as we're, we just don't want to ruffle too many feathers. Explain that a little bit on, because that, that can be a worldview in and of itself, just that, you know, we don't want to do damage to other people. Right. So when we talk about morality specifically, Mm -hmm. some people say, look, I'm totally fine with whatever you want to believe and whatever you want to do in terms of morality for your own life. But don't hurt anyone else. That's kind of the one cardinal rule. And in fact, if you look on websites related to secular humanism, like the American Humanist Association, for example, you'll see that same mentality that it's it's up to the individual, except that you can't hurt someone else. But what we have to understand is that that is an objective moral claim in and of itself. In other mm-hmm. words, that's a, that's a claim about what should or shouldn't be that supposedly comes from some kind of higher authority, right? So if they're saying that no one should hurt someone else, 
well, where does that come from? Is that just your opinion or does that come from this higher being? And so that's one of the arguments that I talk about in the book in terms of pointing toward the existence of a moral lawgiver, that there is this God, this supernatural being who exists beyond the natural world, who has the authority over human beings in order to be able to say you should or shouldn't do something. And when people reject that and they try to get out of it and just say, well, no, it's just I'm my own person. I'm my own authority but they'll still say, as long as you don't hurt someone, but if your worldview can't account for any kind of objective morality, you can't say that there's even one objective moral law. It doesn't work. So in a biblical worldview, we look to God as the ultimate authority and that he is that moral lawgiver. And so we see what he wants from us through the Bible and through that revelation. And I want to come back to the authority issue because I think so much of this is at the root. So let's put a pin in that for just a second. But one of the things that I thought was so stunning, because you said at the beginning of this, how there's secular pressures that are coming against us. And we're sort of blurring those lines between where we sit in that. In the very first chapter of your book, you kind of tackle some of those statistics to point out that guess what, folks, we as a biblical minority are not just a minority against who we would say are non-Christians. We're becoming a minority even amongst the church. And some of those statistics were startling to me. So you gave three or four different surveys and you can expound on them as you wish, but just so our listeners can kind of get where we're coming from, you can read the books, you can go in deeper to what these statistics are, but it was from a top range of about 29% to as low as 6%. Is that correct? Of people that actually ascribe to a biblical worldview as Christians. Right. So just to put a little bit of flesh on the bones of this for people who are listening, if you go out and you do surveys of Americans broadly to find out how people identify themselves. So if you give them a list of atheist, agnostic, Mormon, Jewish, Christian, these kinds of things, what researchers have found in very large surveys, and I'm talking about the Pew Forum right now, if anyone wants to look more into this, they're very well known for doing these huge religious landscape studies. What they find is that about 65% of Americans will say that they're a Christian. So that is a huge percentage, but I think most people, most Christians, people who take their faith seriously, look around and do not feel like nearly two thirds of Americans are Christians. And so you hear that and you go, well, what's going on? Because that just doesn't seem like reality, but we have to understand that that 65%, those are people who identify themselves as Christians. It's just the label that they give to their own beliefs. So that could mean anything. It could mean that they grew up in a Christian home. It could mean that they think Jesus is a pretty cool guy, a good moral teacher. It could mean all kinds of things. So what we really are interested in when we're thinking about how people function in culture and what we're actually dealing with today, we need to look at what people believe. And that's where we get to the worldview issues. What is your worldview? You might call yourself a Christian, but what do you believe to be true about the nature of reality? And for that, we can go to some other research that's done out of Arizona Christian University's Cultural Research Center. And they've done the most specific work on that question. And what they found using dozens of questions about what people believe to be true and how they live their life is that about 6% of people have a biblical worldview. And that's Americans in general. And this is adhering to core truths as taught in the Bible. We're talking about things like the belief that Satan is real, that absolute truth exists, that God is sovereign, questions like this. It's not, you have to be this perfect Christian to count as a biblical worldview. These are just the core truths. And then furthermore, 18 to 29 year olds, that number drops to 2%. And then to get back to your original statement about in the church, this is also a problem in the church. In evangelical churches, they found that only 21% 
of people have a biblical worldview. So not only are we a small minority if we seek to have a biblical worldview within American culture at large, but we are also a minority within the church. That's shocking. And it should make all of us take a step back and go, wait a second. Yes. (laughs) But what do I believe? Does it line up with the Bible? Yeah. You also point out that how relatively quickly this has happened, how we can remember back 25 years ago and twice as many identified and would follow along more, at least some similar value systems. We can all remember 20. Well, maybe not all my listeners, they might be 25, but you know, 25 <laughs> wasn't really that long ago. I wonder how you're observing it. It just feels like even the last few years, anything that we have observed in culture that really wasn't going in a great direction seems to be happening dramatically quicker. These polls, they're going off of the last couple of years, that kind of stuff. So maybe it's going to take us a couple of years to see this data, but I wonder what we'll observe about these last two years and how these have contributed either negatively or positively towards this trend. Yeah, I think there are a lot of factors that go into all of this. But one thing I think that's important is that statistic that you referenced a little bit ago, which is that if you go back 25 years, the number of people who had a biblical worldview was double what it is today. Like you said, most of us can think back and it doesn't seem like that long ago, 25 years ago, but double the number of people had a biblical worldview at that time. So yes, this has been going on for a while. And in fact, you can go back much more than 25 years. You can go back to the beginning of the 1900s, where you started to see that a lot of people were abandoning traditional Christian doctrine, the historic doctrines of the faith. So that part of it has been happening for a long time. It's not that everyone was this biblical Christian over all these hundreds of years since the founding of our country. And then the last five years, everyone abandoned it. That's how it seems, I think, but that's not how it is. That has been going for a long time. But what has changed more rapidly recently is the discarding of values that are consistent with a biblical Mm -hmm. worldview. And I think this is a really important distinction because all those tenets of Christianity that Jesus was raised from the dead, that Jesus is God, that he is the one way to salvation, all of these things, this has been discarded over a very long period of time. But it wasn't as obvious to us of how that was affecting culture when people still hung on to the values that were consistent with that. So for example, the people believing in the sanctity of life or the nature of marriage, the importance of family, all of those things, people generally for the mainstream American culture valued that. And so we didn't see it as obviously around us that culture was in conflict with us because they at least held on to some more values, if not to the same doctrinal tenets. But it's the last few years where now that long hangover of values that's getting discarded. And as that gets discarded, now we see it all laid bare. Now we see, wait, there's nothing left. There's nothing remotely resembling Christianity or biblical worldview in our culture. It's the tip of the iceberg that's been happening for a long time, but now it's just been laid out for us and we can see it very clearly. And now people are happy to say they're not a Christian. Now people look at Christians in a negative light. There's no Mm. more, you know, oh, Christians, at least they're nice people or loving people or anything like that. Now we're the bad ones. So that has been a major turning point. But I think the important thing to realize is that Christianity in terms of the historic Christian faith has been abandoned over a much longer period of time. It's the values that have changed that rapidly we can see that there's just been the severing really of that distinction between what you believe and then what that 
comes to and actually how that plays out in the public square, really. And I think at one point, those lines seem to blur a little bit, maybe because there were those shared values some, but now we see that is completely gone. And I think that highlights why worldview and to understand what your worldview is and be able to articulate that is so important. Because I don't remember as a kid or you know even in high school or college, really, that much talking about what worldview was because it didn't feel as prescient, really. I completely understand. I don't think that I ever heard about worldview either growing up. It it wasn't until really that I got in my thirties and I had kids and I started a blog where I was writing about Christian parenting and I started getting challenged by skeptics. I had this whole journey, which is a whole other story into learning what apologetics was. That's when I started learning about worldview and what all these things meant, these terms and what's consistent with different worldviews and what's not and starting to process these things. And then I became passionate about it because the same exact thing that you're saying, no one's talking about this yet. It's absolutely critical for understanding what's going on around us. And it's challenging for a lot of people because if you have never had any exposure to these kinds of concepts, and that's a lot of people because the church is not overwhelmingly doing a great job of it, this can be a tough go. I've heard from some people who are saying like, you know, I'm reading faithfully different. And, you know, this is also new to me. Like I'm struggling a little bit. Like I have to like keep, you know, I reread and I highlight and they say, this is obviously really important information, but I just have to spend more time processing it. And I think that's totally normal. I've done as well as I can, obviously everyone can do a better job, but I've done as well as I can to try to make these complex concepts simpler and break them down. So even when you get to a simpler level, it is a challenge. It is different. It's a different way of thinking about everything that we've believed and about the nature of faith and our worldview and how that compares to what's going on around us. And if you have no exposure to that, it can be a challenge at first, but it's so important because it's when you start to process these things and start to realize how those pieces fit together from a worldview perspective that you say, oh, now I can yeah. put my finger on what that is. Now I understand what the message is behind that Disney movie. It's not just kind of, oh, that doesn't sound very good. or I don't want my kids watching that, but oh, I can see how that's consistent with the secular worldview and how they're trying to promote that particular perspective. So it makes sense of so much, but it is a very new way of thinking. I think that's important for everyone. But when you put on the lens of being a mom and thinking about the things that our kids are going to take in, and it can be overwhelming if you don't kind of do a little bit of some re-education of what they're taking in from the world and from media that seems so subtle. I think it's becoming a little less subtle, honestly. I mean, I feel like their ploys are becoming so overt lately that it's becoming more shocking. Or maybe it's just because I'm reading a bunch on worldview. I don't know. <laughs> but you're right. It is so subtle. And I think that's the problem. And that's what I'm trying to help people with in the book is to see that, you know, the average Christian, of course, if they heard in a movie, you know, a lot of claims about about somebody saying the main character saying, well, of course God doesn't exist. And I'm an atheist, something very overt like that. Of course, they're going to know, well, that's not consistent with biblical Christianity. Like no one has a problem with that. Right. But it's all of these subtle things that get worked in that it's not as obvious, you know, it's the message, like follow your heart. Well, no, that sounds nice. It sounds good, but that actually is totally opposite of what the Bible would tell us that we should be following Jesus, even if the heart says something else. So that is a subtle kind of change. And a lot of people won't notice it. And that's why we do have to really get to the worldview level of understanding. This is not just a cutesy thing on mugs and pillows. This is an actual statement of an entire worldview of secularism, which is ultimately all about the authority of the self. You're the expert, you're in charge, follow your heart. Not just a cute saying, it's a worldview statement. 
Yeah. We have to talk about authority and the authority of self thing, because I, it doesn't just feel like it's the pesky little weed. That's a little bit at the root of all of this. Any issue you're going to talk about, you have to decide. And you did this at the beginning of your book too, to tell people that this is to Christians, because we are going to agree that the Bible, that God is our authority. Most of us, hopefully everyone listening, you can check that box and say, I have submitted to the authority of God and his word, but that's not where our world is at. If it's not, God's not the authority, then who is the authority? Right. And this is why a lot of people think that when we talk about secularism, they think that it's neutral because they say, well, I I don't have the authority of a religion. I don't have the authority of a God. But we have to understand that when you take away that authority from people, it doesn't mean that they're left with no authority. They're left with the authority of themselves. And so that's what we have is millions of people who have all kinds of different beliefs mixed and matched together about the nature of reality. But what ties them all together is that their source of authority is the self. It's not an external authority like God and the Bible, or even for a Mormon, for example, a Mormon can also have an external authority, meaning God and the book of Mormon. And then we have to get into which authority is actually true. And that's a different kind of question. But right now, all I'm separating out in the book is in a matter of secularism versus a biblical worldview, it's ultimately where is your source of authority? One of the things that as I was writing the book that really stood out to me is that it might seem on the surface that if everyone's authorities itself, you would just have millions of people running around with such different ideas about things. But there is such a commonality that flows from people having self-authority that you see these ideas start to blend together. And the four that I highlight in the book are that feelings are the ultimate guide. Happiness is the ultimate goal. Judging is the ultimate sin. And God is the ultimate guess. And in other words, that there's no reason to be confident anyone can have any objective knowledge about God. It's just a guess if he's there. So even though everyone is resorting to this authority of the self, there are some strong commonalities there. And that's where we see culture all kind of coming together. Now, if your authority is the self, your feelings are going to be the guide you are going to be working toward this subjective happiness goal in your life. Judging is going to seem like a sin to you because you're the authority. So who is anyone else to say what you should or shouldn't do? So all those things are in common. And when you start to see those, you start to see it everywhere. And and I've heard a lot of that too, from people who have read the book that after seeing those four statements, they can pick this out in all kinds of places that you see it in the media, for sure. You see it in news and entertainment. It's absolutely everywhere. There again, feelings are the guide here. Again, this person is appealing to happiness being the goal. You start to have this worldview radar up when you realize what secularism is all about. And that helps us, I think, to consistently resist it as Christians who want to have a biblical worldview that's appropriately rooted in the authority of God. I'm so glad you brought those up because when gals, when you get to read the book, those four tenets are huge. Cause I do think they very simply break it down to what you're seeing women culture. We're all sucked into sometimes about the feelings, things. And sometimes I think in ways of social justice and things like that, those things like appeal to that feeling side. I was really glad that you kind of delved into the social justice issue and ciphering out what is biblical justice and those kinds of things, because there's always these pieces of things that there's an ounce of truth to it. Satan likes to do that. Right. But it's going to come in with your feeling. And did you feel, and man, if you can stop yourself and ask yourself, am I judging this based on a feeling or an actual authoritative truth in scripture, you know, then it's black and white, but we just give into those feelings so much. And I think women in particular have to be really on our guard about that. 
Yeah. And those messages surround us all the time. And so the more that we hear about it, the more that we hear people saying, you know, well, what are you feeling? Or, you know, what, what do you think is best for you? It's so individually based and it doesn't necessarily sound bad if you haven't really thought through these ideas. And so you see a lot of women who are getting led astray by some supposedly Christian authors who are preaching some very unchristian messages and writing some very unchristian things about it's all about you and you need to go out and do what makes you happy. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible says that we should be following Jesus, that we should deny ourselves and take up our cross to follow Jesus. That doesn't sound like, oh, you go be you, you, you go girl. Like that, that is not a biblical message whatsoever. The heart is deceitful above all things. So we have to get to a point where we understand that and that we are so convicted of the truth of Christianity. Christianity and our relationship with the Lord that we're willing to say, I might feel differently about it, but I'm going to go with what the Bible says, because I trust that that is the authoritative word of God that is true for all time, regardless of how I feel in this particular moment. And and I think that's where we have to put down our roots. Yeah. I think you're so right. It's a game changer. You either, you have to decide who that authority is going to be and be able to answer that question or else you've, you've just got no, no ground to stand on. You are going to just kind of get swept away with wherever culture is going to take you and whatever feels good and whatever drives the next happiness train. I feel so convicted for women. We don't have time for that. We have kiddos to be bringing up and we have coworkers and friends that need to be pointed to a real truth and something that's solid and not something that's just what culture wants to tell us is truth. I want to switch gears just a little bit because it was very fascinating to me because my marketing knowledge is non-existent. And I know that that is your background, but you had a section in the book where you put a marketing model onto some of these issues. And you talk about how that looks marketing wise, but then what that looks like in culture and how we're doing this. And so I wonder if you would walk through a little bit, each of those, because I think it's another one, kind of like those four tenets of the feelings, the happiness and the judge and all of that kind of stuff that can kind of serve as some benchmarks a little bit for us to observe the things that we see culture making shifts on and how they're doing that. Particularly, it caught me with the word equality. And I know you gave that as an example, but if you could just walk us through that marketing, just that framework. I use this in the eighth chapter where I'm talking about reaffirming biblical morality. And what I'm trying to show in that chapter is that in a very real sense, culture is marketing new ideas about morality to us. They're trying to redefine what is good or bad, right or wrong through an almost predictable marketing process. And I use this model that marketers have well-researched and used for over a hundred years. It's based on consumer psychology and many studies. And so this is actually a well-documented thing, but the original use is in the context of a purchase buy-in. So if you're going to make a decision about buying something high involvement related, something that takes a lot of time, like a car, for example, not just a stick of gum at the store. You know, if you buy a stick of gum or a pack of gum, rather, you grab it off the shelf. It's no big deal. It's just an impulse buy. But if you're going to buy a car, you go through these series of mental steps before you get there. It starts with awareness. You have to be aware of that this car exists if you're ever going to buy it. And then it goes to interest. You have to become interested in it, not just aware of it. Once you're interested in it, that's got to turn into desire. So not just this passing interest, but now I actively want to purchase it. And then that goes to the actual purchase point that it's not just the desire you've actually bought it. So that's a little bit of the background that kind of just makes intuitive sense of how marketers look at this. But what I show is that this can also be used to get moral 
marketing buy-in. And so you can see that in terms of trying to gain this popular consensus today, people will start and activists will start at that top level of the funnel awareness. And what they have to do at that part is just to get people to be aware that this is some kind of issue that people should be aware of and that they should care about. So you see a lot of efforts to redefine words at this stage because the average person is not going to get behind a cause unless they really believe that people are being hurt if they don't. Otherwise, it just stays in the realm of somewhere else of, you know, a small group of people who care. So you mentioned the word equality, for example, diversity, equality, and tolerance. These, your, these words used to mean something very different than the way in which they are used today. Equality just used to mean that all people are inherently valuable and are inherently equal because God imbued them with that value and that equality. That directly comes from a biblical worldview. But today, equality means that all morality, all choices are equal in a moral value. This is not what the word equality has traditionally meant. So what activists have done is to change the definition and then to shame you if you now don't support new equality. And this is the challenge for Christians because it's a bait and switch in terms of the definition of words. But people know, and activists are very aware of how language changes culture. They know that they have to redefine these words in people's awareness before they can ever move down the funnel toward complete moral buy-in. And so that's the first step is turning this into a positive word. Just to give you a kind of a conflicting example of that, of a group that's trying to do that and hasn't gone further in the funnel, I use the example of pedophiles now are trying to be known as minor attracted persons. Wow. Minor attracted persons. Now they haven't gotten all the way through the funnel toward moral buy-in yet from the popular consensus that we're all okay with pedophilia. I think that that will come eventually, but they're still in that first stage of the funnel where they're trying to basically rebrand and people's awareness that this is minor attracted persons, which has a very different connotation than pedophilia. So that's the first part of the funnel. From there, once they have reestablished that and they have redefined the words, the next part of the funnel that they have to get to, and this is kind of analogous in the marketing funnel to interest, is normalization. Because normalization is the closest thing that people have to a moral good in a secular worldview. They have no objective source of morality outside of themselves to point to. They don't have a God authority. They don't have a Bible that reveals this objective moral truth. So the closest thing that they can get to is popular consensus to get more and more people on board who will all grab together and say, yes, this is good. So it's a proxy for a moral good. And I use the example in that chapter of the Shout Your Abortion movement, for example. Abortion had already gone through this awareness stage, the redefinition, and so now it's reproductive rights for example, or abortion care, renaming the word so that it reframes it as a positive thing. But beyond that, now they've gone to the next stage of normalization. So hashtag shout your abortion is all about making it so that it is not this crazy thing that happens, that it's so normal that it's obviously just fine. Normalization equals good in a secular perspective as you work through that funnel. And then the final stage is celebration. So you go through the awareness to redefine the words. Then you go through normalization to make sure everyone knows, hey, this is so normal, it must be good. We've got the popular consensus to now we can celebrate. And the example that I use in the book is the drag queen story hour that a lot of public libraries host these drag queens who are reading to kids. And that message is so clear. They're saying, hey, we're past the 
redefinition stage. We're past the normalization stage. Now we're at the point where we can celebrate that being a drag queen is something that is so positive that we're now reading with kids because everyone, even a young kid, should see how morally good this is. And that's the message. It gets down to the celebration. So just like we can go through these stages, these predictable stages in marketing to get someone to a purchase buy-in, we can get a moral buy-in also, or at least secular culture wants to, by moving people through these stages. I really feel like this is a fascinating way of looking at it because Mm -hmm. if we realize that morality is being marketed to us in a sense, whether people realize it or not, that is a powerful way, I think, to look at what's going on and know that we have to resist these ideas. It's just such a great framework to see how those things are coming together. And some of those examples we gave, they almost sound like, oh, those are things that are happening outside the church. I think that's where we got to pause. Remember some of those earlier stats to how many people are actually church going Christians that are actually not ascribing to a biblical worldview. And so they're being pulled in a secular role. When the example with the drag queen story hour, you pointed out that sometimes there wasn't libraries that would put them in. And so churches did. It should highlight to us We are in a place in culture that it's not just the outside world that this is happening in. It is happening within the church as well. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And a lot of those story hours are taking place in in progressive Christian churches. So churches that don't even necessarily profess that the Bible is the authoritative source for their worldview. And so that's interesting too, because you have a lot of people and churches who are calling themselves Christians, but are consciously rejecting the Bible as their authoritative source of truth. So you have that going on as well. And that, you know, because there's this belief amongst progressive Christians that truth evolves over time, that the Bible is really just man's best ideas about God, that it's not God's actual truths as told to people over time. And so when you get this, it's a very different kind of perspective. And this is where the churches are that are really hosting these drag queen story hours, especially they're the kinds of churches who are saying, we don't look to the Bible as our authority. We are a Christian church and we're going to love people because we believe in equality and diversity by using the world's terms for those things and bringing in these drag queen story hours. It's such a slippery slope. I think it's sometimes easy to hear something that's so shocking like that and go, well, that would never happen in our church or how, how would it not? I believe it was a Lifeway study that you quoted about Christians. And I don't think it was restricted to women, but just Christians in general that read their Bible once a week or less. I don't know if you remember what that what It was kind of crazy. I don't remember off the top of my head, but yeah, I'm not going to throw out a number yeah, because I, I don't remember the exact number, but that's yeah. that. That's first and foremost, a huge problem in the church is that how can you have a biblical worldview if you don't know what the Bible actually yep. teaches? And all the research shows that a majority of Christians are not reading their Bible even once a week. That's a huge part of it. I kind of look at it, you know, you mentioned the percent of people in, in the church who don't have a biblical worldview. I look at that in terms of the two different groups. You have the ones who are explicitly saying, yeah, we reject the Bible as an authoritative source, which is like the progressive Christian churches I'm talking about. But then you have everybody else who thinks that they have a biblical worldview, but they actually don't when you look at their beliefs. So those are two entirely different issues. And I think that the biblical literacy one is a huge part of explaining that second group, the people who think they have a biblical worldview or who want to have a biblical worldview, but they just don't understand that their beliefs don't line up with what the Bible teaches because they're not reading the Bible. Yeah. And and that's a great point to make because it's sort of like, I guess in my mind, I used to, I can't really do this anymore, but I used to think that, you know, if my kiddos went to a public university, 
the evil was like black and white. You could be like, well, you'd clearly know that this is wrong. And it was very clear. But, you know, the Christian school, you'd be like, well, it's a little more gray sometimes the things that are going on. And it kind of is the same situation now. You could see that if I could put the progressive church in the camp of like, that's clearly, nope, they're not even like ascribing to what the authority of scripture is. They have a very different definition. You don't really have to dig too deep to see that that is a very, it's just a very different I don't know that you could even call it a theology, but it's a very different worldview than what we have for sure. But then it's this camp, the Christian side that I think that is the one that gets my heart a little bit to just bring awareness because we do let it slip in. And it's not too long until you get to a place where you have come further and further away from being able to find what that biblical worldview is. And it's steady. It's not a quick fix. You know, I think that's the thing about biblical literacy and really just knowing our Bible is it's not like you could just wake up in the morning and check off your reading plan and you got it. Those are things are good. And we want to have that steady habit, but there are places that we need to be a little bit more intentional and up our game a little bit, as far as what we know about scripture ourselves, in order to stay in that place where we are firmly rooted in the biblical worldview, and we're not going to be pulled to that other side. Yeah, I think there are two parts of that. One is the knowledge of it, which is what you're speaking to. And one is the conviction that it's true. And I think both of those are lacking in the church because the conviction that aside, you have to at least know what the Bible teaches. And like you're saying, that doesn't happen overnight. I love Greg Kokel's book, The Story of Reality for this, to understand the big picture. He just goes through and he tells it as the true story of reality. And it's a very helpful book. So if anyone's listening who is trying to just make sure they're understanding the big tenets of the biblical worldview. I love that book for that. But the flip side of that is just the conviction that it actually is true. This is where we get into apologetics, how you make a case for and defend the truth of Christianity. And a big part of that, obviously, is the Bible itself. So I think for a lot of Christians who haven't studied any kind of apologetics, even if they know what's in the Bible, they kind of waver when they get confronted with someone who might be hostile to them because they don't really know how to defend the Bible themselves. They don't really know deep down. They're not as convicted as they should be that the Bible Bible actually is God's word. They might even know what God's word says, but are they convicted that it actually is God's word? So those are kind of two different parts of the problem also that I think we're struggling with as a church. And it's hard because overwhelmingly churches are not addressing those issues. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of Romans when it talks about how our consciences become seared, how much of that is happening just in the way that we're just pulling away from the things that we're lacking the conviction on just some major issues. I hope that we're at least putting some appetizers out there about where this whole conversation can go on worldview. I'm going to just hit on one other thing because it was probably my favorite chapter in the book. And it was when you talked about the different Jesuses that having a worldview that is not lined up with scripture, what it lends to. I think this one was so powerful for a lot of reasons. I think one of them is because we don't even comprehend the enormity of who God is. And when I was reading that particular chapter that morning, actually, I had also been reading Tozer's Knowledge of the Holy. That's such a great book, but he talks about in that we can have a degraded view of who God is. And when you have that degraded view of who God really is, then that kind of lends itself to these other Jesuses that are more in the image of us than in the image of who he really is. And it's something that we should almost, that's the handle that with fear and trembling a little bit on knowing who God is. And I think that was why when I read these different Jesuses that you came down with, and we're not going to go through all of them. So y'all are going to have to go grab the book to be able to go and pick up. But if you could just pick one of those 
that you were really struck by as you studied this and you went through this, which one did you feel was just the most poignant for today? I think in total, I go through maybe nine or 10. I don't remember actually exactly how many it was in the chapter. So there are several in there, but I think the one that I see a lot because I do encounter a lot of progressive Christians online. The most common one that I see there is what I call the theology light Jesus. In this case, Jesus really didn't care about theology. It was all just how you treated other people, that it was all about your behavior, not what you believe. And so there's this whole claim and there's this whole belief that Jesus doesn't really care what you believe about him or believe about God. Just make sure you're loving other people. And the problem with that is that that's a theology too. So it's never a question of, well, does Jesus care about theology, whether he cares about theology or not, it's still a theology. It's well, what did he teach? What was the theology that he taught? That's the pertinent question that we have to look at. But when you do, you see that Jesus isn't just talking about how to treat other people all the time. He's talking about God and he's pointing people to the father. And he's talking about things about what people believe and what you should believe to be true and making claims about truth, making claims about his identity. This is so important to understand. You just, you literally, and if anyone doubts that, I challenge you to take a gospel and read it and imagine in your mind that the claim is out there that Jesus only cares about behavior. You just cannot get that from reading the gospels. If you take Mark, for example, and you just start reading, it takes nine chapters before he's even getting to the point where he's starting to talk a little bit more about teachings. And and this is the turning point in the gospel where he asked Peter, you know, who do you say that I am? All of those chapters leading up to that, it's, it's all establishing from Mark's perspective that Jesus was showing himself to be the Messiah. He's healing people. It's healing after healing. Well, that's not about how we're treating others. This is Jesus making a claim about who he is and the authority that he has. So you just can't actually read the gospels in their entirety and take away a theology like Jesus. If by that, you mean that Jesus only cares about behavior and not what you believe. You have to just be picking and choosing from the Bible, using your own preconceived notions about what's important to Jesus. Jesus does care about what we believe. He taught a lot about what's true about reality. And people just don't want to see that. They don't want to see that what you believe matters. And it does. It does. It has eternal significance. You even, you quote in the book, John Pavlovitz, who is a very prominent progressive pastor that he, I think his quote is that Jesus is more about relationship than theology. You're not just extrapolating this and trying to come up with, you know, some new idea on your own. This is really what they say. That's just a very common thing. And I think some of it goes back to a little bit on, do we even understand what theology is? Do we understand what the core tenets of Christianity are? And it does go back a little bit to us as Christians that if you're in the camp of you're just reading your Bible once a week, any minute you're in the Bible is better than zero. So I never want to come at it like some legalistic, crazy thing that that's what it's about. But knowing what we really believe in, seems how important this is right now that we just can't glaze over that because those ideas are really out there. They are. They are absolutely everywhere. And like you said, I use an example, a quote from someone for each of those Jesuses, just so people can see how these ideas manifest themselves and things that people are teaching. And John Pavlovitz, that who you were just talking about, I mean, he has a best-selling book right now called If God is Love, Don't Be a Jerk. 
And actually on, on my podcast, I, Alisa Childers and I, we recently went through that book and the key ideas that he talks about in there that are just so representative of a lot of progressive ideas today. And we kind of break those down, but you just see this over and over that God's only about love. I mean, even with the title of that book, he is only about love, but they never stop to talk about, well, how do you define love and how does the Bible define love? Because it's very different than how progressives do. And I'm going to put a bunch of the links, especially I just listened to that one that you're referencing because you guys just did that one. It seems like in the last week or so, but so we'll put some links for your podcast and we'll put some links for some of the ones that you've recently done. So gals can find this. I want to kind of wrap up and end on it. Can we end on a positive note? Because I do think it is important. And actually one other thing I want to say too, one of the things, cause I've talked about on the podcast, I'm pretty slow to recommend books in places like that. I'm always, and I always tell gals, I don't care if it's the greatest book in the world. If you're not first in your Bible, you need to first be in your Bible. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you would agree with me on that Absolutely, part as yes. well. One of the things that I really admire about how you structure your books. And of course this was this way in the apologetics books as well, but you really reference a lot of scripture in it. And I know that seems to like, it should go without saying, but I think it's sometimes like needing to read the definition of a word that you know, that, you know, but sometimes reading the definition kind of gives you that perspective and it anchors you to like, oh, this is what we're talking about. It's kind of the same thing. And especially when you're talking about with biblical a worldview, you need to go look at the passage. You need to go look at those scriptures. You need to go look at Ephesians where it tells you that we're putting off the old self. So the authority of self is not a thing for us. We don't want to be part of that. We're, we're to be pressing in to be regenerating into more the image of Christ. And so you're really careful in your book to really put those passages in there. And sometimes I read books and I won't always go look up those passages And I find when I do that, when I take the lazy way out, I'm poorer for it because it really does help us to see what scripture is really saying. And I think that's taking that next step up in order to be able to really read and really kind of know what the Bible is saying on this. But as we conclude, like, I loved how in several of your chapters, you end on scripture and the positive messages on where we go from here in this culture that we're in. I wanted to just give you a chance to kind of leave us on a positive note as far as that goes. Yeah, I think so many people do feel discouraged by today's culture because if you love the Lord and you do, you look to the Bible as, you know, God's revealed word to us and it is eternal truths, it's hard to look at what's going on in culture because we see it sliding away. We can, most of us feel that it's not going to go back to anything before, not that that's necessarily the goal, but we see that it's getting further and further away from, from God. And that can be really discouraging. But I think we have to remember that Jesus didn't tell us that we were ever going to be comfortable. You know, I always tell people, you would know the Bible was false if Jesus had said, being a Christian is gonna be super easy. It's gonna be easier for you than anyone. And while we're not experiencing that it's super easy, right? So that would discredit what Jesus said. But instead, Jesus actually said, the world will hate you because it hated me first. And so of course, we, we should expect this. We've been maybe a little spoiled in that we haven't had to deal with a lot of the conflict in past years as much as maybe we are now and will in the future. So just because we've been spoiled doesn't mean that something has gone wrong. It's going exactly according to how Jesus told us that it was going to go. So yes, the world is going to hate us. But when we realize that and we start to accept the goal is not to make Christianity more normal in some sense, but rather to be faithful to our calling in it, when we start thinking of it that way, then we see opportunity. 
Instead of saying, oh, how do we hang on to this culture that's getting so far away? We say, yeah, we knew the culture was going to be far away. This is our opportunity to be salt and light. And now we have the opportunity when there's this darkness that's abounding and there are people being hurt by the darkness to be the ones that God is calling to come out, to stand up strong and to share his truth. We just have to know that people aren't always going to like it. And I think, especially for women, that's sometimes hard because a lot of us want to be liked. We don't want people to think that we're mean. We don't like conflict sometimes, but as much as you are loving and gracious in your tone and the way that you speak truth, there are still people who will hate you because they hate the truth you're sharing. We've got to get okay with that and know that in living up to our calling, we're being obedient to God. That is part of how we love God is being obedient to his commands to make disciples of all nations, to share his truth. So don't feel discouraged, accept it as a reality of what Jesus said would be normal in this world and go forward knowing that we have the opportunity to shine light for those who are called and who need it. Thank you so much, Natasha. I so appreciate you taking this time. I know that this is just going to be a blessing for so many of the gals and gals. If you've not had a chance to read Natasha's book, Faithfully Different, I really do recommend it. It is so good. I'm going to put a link in the show notes for you guys. And then also I gathered a bunch of Natasha's, all of her books actually. So if you don't follow us on Instagram, go and follow at Athey Women. We're going to be doing a, whenever this podcast drops, we're going to do something on social media so that we're going to do a giveaway of some of Natasha's books on that. So Natasha, thank you so much for coming on. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great talking with you. Thank you for tuning in to The Devoted Podcast. We are a ministry of Athey Creek Christian Fellowship in West Lynn, Oregon. For more resources, or if you need prayer or encouragement, send us an email at devotedpodcast at atheycreek.com.